The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder, and I glean secrets from influential senior figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realise still feel like a fraud. But you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. This is the fun bit. You've got my undivided attention. (laughs) In this episode, you get to eavesdrop on my conversation with executive producer and showrunner Carrie Leah whose latest project is the high-profile behind-the-scenes tennis doc series on Netflix, Breakpoint. Carrie's got an enviable CV, having developed and delivered at top factual companies, including Plum Pictures, Keo, Minnow and Box to Box. So she's a hard lady to book, and I would know. We're talking about her unusual break into TV, the California versus Cambridge culture clash, and how she eventually landed her first directing role after an always the bridesmaid, never the bride kind of few years as a producer. Carrie, welcome to Imposter Club. Thanks for having me. Be honest though, what did you first think when I approached you about being part of a podcast called The Imposter Club? I, well, firstly, it was you asking, so it, it's different. I think, you know, if you're doing it, that's, it sounds exciting. I know it's going to be something worth talking about. So, you know, obviously that that's great. I... My honest answer when you asked me about um, feeling like an imposter, and I know it's something that everyone you know talks about a lot at the moment, but my let's be honest, okay? I'm, I'm five foot one. I'm a working class, semi-brown Californian girl. Ever since I got into TV, there isn't anyone, because I've been almost my entire career in London, that it like looks like me, it talks like me, is anything like me. So I've kind of had to like map out this whole idea of what, I could do in TV on on my own, which is fantastic. I am not complaining in the slightest, but um, there hasn't ever been a kind of idea of what I should be like or or some kind of role model that mm-hmm. I could feel an imposter of because you know I I I don't fit in anywhere. But um, but then I thought about it and I kind of thought it through and realized yes, of course, of course. And I think actually anyone that goes, makes that transition from kind of being a student or being someone who wants to get into TV to actually doing it, of course you feel like an imposter. I mean, every, of course, because you don't know what you're doing. And then it's only when you realize later that actually no one knows what they're doing that you think, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and then it comes full circle. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm really excited to be talking to you about moments during your career where you have felt that sense of, oh my gosh, I've just got to get my head down and do this because also what I'm learning from my conversations with people is that imposter syndrome manifests itself in very different ways with everyone and like you said actually didn't you have a chat with your husband and he was like Carrie like <laughs> yes you have like that that your gut instinct was to feel like actually you hadn't felt it but that's because your definition of it is different 
to the next person. Definitely. And I think a lot of times in TV, and I suppose I'm thinking in the last 10 years, you know, but so often what happens is that you're working so hard, but you get the job that, you know, is the kind of next step up or whatever that is. You probably, by the time you get it, you've probably already been doing it for two or three years, you know, you and before you actually get that recognition of here you go. Yeah, actually, the way you got into the industry is fascinating. Where, where were you born and how did you end up over in, in London, Carrie? Oh, it was, it was totally bonkers. So I was born in Santa Monica, which is Southern California, and I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Northern California, a really small town, and uh, was interested in, in TV but never thought anything about it. Parents who were incredibly encouraging but had never gone to university or anything like that them, themselves. But what had happened when I was growing up in Northern California, there was a lot of drive-by shootings, you know, in the news, it was drive-by shootings, abortion, uh, drop out of uh, kids dropping out of high school, drugs. And when you watch the news, all you heard was teenagers are terrible, teenagers are disasters. And so I was about 15 years old and I was like, this is bullshit. Like, this is so not true to en- any of my friends, anyone I know. Like, we're just trying to get by. We're trying not to get shot. We're trying, you know, to avoid drugs. We're just trying to, you know, do the best we can and get out and and make something of ourselves. So I wrote a letter to the local TV station. In America, you have like TV stations for whole kind of regions. And there Mm -hmm. was one for Northern California. I wrote to him and I just said, the way that you talk about teenagers is like really talking down to us. And by the way, we're watching. And uh, right. So I, I dropped this off. I don't know where I got the balls to do this. Honestly, I dropped this off at the local TV station and wrote it to the, the guy. And, and this is the time of actual letters. Yeah. And putting it through the door or like giving it to the reception. Oh, I'm super old. I know. <laughs> yeah, we I, I actually dropped the physical letter off at this. And um, and an hour later, uh, I got a phone call and it was the station manager. And he says, will you come in? And I thought it was going to be on like the, you know, uh, KFTY naughty step or something. But like I, I went in and he was like, this is amazing. Do you want your own segment on the news? Do you want to present? What? I know. <laughs> so hold on. It, it, it kind of went from a viewer complaint to a, do you want your own segment? Not even do, can I interview Yeah, he was like, I'll give you a producer. I'll give you a cameraman, the whole thing. And I mean, I had the biggest braces you've ever seen. I, I mean, they were especially large. I had no shame whatsoever. I just said, yes, I want to do it. And not worried about the Good braces. And I was, I was on TV every week for three years. Yeah. It's an unreal story. <laughs> and had you ever thought, beyond complaining about the content of that news station, had you wanted to work in no. TV at that point, either on or off camera? Oh, I mean, when you're 15, like, you're not thinking about that kind of thing, are you? So, no, definitely not. But I love it. What was your segment called? I'm not, I'm not, oh, no, it's so embarrassing. Say I'm, it, I, say it. Called, okay, I'll, it's called Teen Beat. Oh, oh, I can't believe I just told you that. It's like a deep, dark secret. <laughs> what? 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 The, why is that so bad? Teen I, beat. It made me cringe every week. But the the segment was cool. Like, you know, no one was really talking about a lot of issues back then, and and and, and we did, and it was great, and I loved it. And you were talking at a level of your peers, right? Yeah. So, what kind of thing did you have? What kind of thing did you kind of do on the show? Yeah, I mean, we talked about we talked about abortion, we talked about birth control, we talked about teen moms, and 
racism at a time when no one was talking about racism. There's a lot of almost segregation in the high schools I, you know, the high school I went to. And um, yeah, we talked about those things. I mean, that, I'm already getting a picture of a very plucky, confident 15-year-old. See, do you know what? I find it so interesting because ever since I moved here, and I moved here when I was 21, when I told, I, I didn't want to tell people about this show for years because the idea that I was like reaching above where you should be right. as a teenager and is seen as a negative okay. thing. Whereas in in America or back home, people are like, great, go out and get some. Like, go and get it for, you know, go out there and, and do it. Whereas here, I never told people about it so much because it was always seen as a bit of like, you know, being an upstart. That's, that's so interesting. And that's an immediate kind of reference to a cultural divide, I would think, that you felt when you came yeah. over straight away. So Okay, that's that's kind of set you up in my mind as someone who was just, yeah, a go-getter who had three years' experience by the time they were 18 working yeah. in TV. Didn't that's... count for anything. <laughs> well, I bet it built something inside something. you. It told you what you wanted to do, maybe, and what you were passionate yeah, about. definitely, definitely. Yeah. So when did you come to London? And tell us about your first job in the industry? Well, by the time I was 18 and I was about to go to uni, I, I thought I wanted to be a, like a foreign correspondent on the news. But then news was really changing at that time. It was like um, ambulance chasing, much more sensationalist, going that kind of Fox News wasn't around, but it was going that Fox News sort of way. And the writing was on the wall. And I started becoming interesting in documentaries. And I could see at the end of documentaries was there was always WGBH. I had no idea what that was, but it was... Um, like the BBC of America, and it was in Boston. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I have to go to university in Boston. So I went to university in Boston. I ended up getting a work experience job there. And it was very clear from working there that nothing was made in Boston. Everything was made in London at the BBC. So I thought I had a year left and I thought I had some English friends and I thought, well, I'll just go to London for six months, get a work experience gig. You know, London's like the Hollywood of documentary making. So I'll go and check it out. And what did your parents think about this, Carrie? Because you've already said they didn't go to uni and they didn't work in the media in any way. Yeah. Uh, my parents are very loving, but both of them suffered from drug addiction and mental health problems. And by that time, quite severely, in, at least in my mom's mm -hmm. case. So they were like, good luck. You know, right. they weren't going to say a whole, a whole lot, but except for, um, except for good luck. And th they were supportive. They were supportive. That sounds like it, it sort of made you fairly independent then in your own totally right. Totally independent. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you thought, let's go to London. What happened? And I was following a boy. I never quite throw that in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it wasn't just the career. If I'm being honest, we're, I feel like this is a confessional space here. Uh, yeah, no, of course I was following a boy too. Yeah, yeah. cool. So kind of early career, early love. That it must have been a big deal then to come to set foot on uh, London soil and go, okay, I can work in telly. I've got nearly a degree and I was on telly for a bit. So how did you walk into a job here or did you find it tough to find one? Again, I wrote letters and I asked if I could come in and I got a work experience job, which turned into a job at uh, Brook Lapping. Oh, yeah. And they were making this fantastic series called Israel and the Arabs. And it was just, it was like all my Christmas that had come at once. The people I was working with and everything, it was, it was great. But I, for me... It was a huge cultural shift because I wasn't just American. I was very Californian with a very, very strong accent. And I think there's a huge difference even between California and, and the East Coast. But uh, with London, it was very different. And 
Californians are naturally very optimistic. And someone had told me before I came over, whatever you do, you have to sound cynical and pessimistic. Otherwise, they're just going to think you're stupid. So if anyone asks you, what do you think of that TV show? You could never say it was fantastic. You'd have to say, well, you know, and, and scratch your chin. And so I found this difficult, but I, I, uh, I got a lot of things wrong at first, but I was trying. And I think this is where I was thinking of the imposter syndrome thing. I tried desperately to sound serious and cynical for a couple of years. And I used to call it the Oxbridge Jedi mind trick, but these kind of guys I was working with, they would always, you know, scratch their chins and say something that to my mind sounded like very obvious, but they would say it in such a way that you would make it sound very, very clever. Yeah, very wise. <laughs> very wise. I wasn't very good at that, but I tried. Yeah. But I, I want to pick up on something you said there about um, everything that you said at the beginning was wrong. Now, with hindsight, yeah. do you think what you were saying is wrong or were you just being yourself? I think when you're 21, you're anyone that's 21 is quite naive, even though I'd had a huge, you know, more life experience than probably a lot of people at that age. You don't really know what it means to work day in, day out, year after year to create something that is fantastic and hopefully phenomenal on an international scale. I think there's a level mm -hmm. of excellence that's demanded of you that you can't possibly imagine. I don't care who you are when you're 21. So I think as an American, you naturally say things that are flippant and fun and you try and, you know, maybe that was more where mm -hmm. you come from. Whereas I was working on a totally different level with people whose educations and knowledge just completely blew me away. I loved it, by the way. Absolutely loved it. Did you find yourself actively changing your behavior? to fit in at a documentary company in London? Of course, yeah. I mean, every time I opened my mouth, people started laughing at my accent. So I had to change my accent. Yeah, I mean, everyone that I worked with was a guy. I was, I was the only girl. I was the only one that hadn't been to Oxbridge or, or that level of university. Um, okay. And yeah, I was totally different. You know, I was you know, walking around in my flip-flops and, I, you know, I had to learn how to, to uh, operate in that scenario so of course yeah so there's an element of that isn't there that you could argue was feeling imposter syndrome therefore you were kind of masking who you really were and changing that to to fit in I mean there are positives and negatives about that I would say yeah I think anyone who would come from such a different background and find themselves plunked in there I think I see Brits doing that when they go to America by the way you know mm -hmm. suddenly they have this American accent and they're super smiley and you're like, wait, I know that's not where you go, bro. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it can go both ways. It was actually meeting my husband who he actually comes from parents met at Oxford. You know, he comes from that whole sort of background mm -hmm. and he just said, no, you, you don't even try. Like, don't, don't bother. Like there's a, loads of people who've got that thing going on, but what you've got is something very different and, and be happy and proud of that and don't try to hide it. So it took someone else who you were getting close to at that point to actually point out that what you were doing wasn't helpful for yeah. you or them. Yeah. And I probably would have figured it out eventually, but I think... Um, I'm just trying to give him some kudos. No, no, he'll love that. Oh my God, are you kidding? This is The Imposter Club. Coming up... Back then, women weren't seen as directors. And also, I didn't want to make lifestyle or baby shows. I've got a favour to ask. 
pretty please hit follow or subscribe to the Imposter Club podcast for two reasons. One, so you don't miss an episode, but two, because I'm told it'll help other people find us more easily. After all, the more people like us that are safe inside the Imposter Club, the fewer there are outside on their own. Welcome back to the Imposter Club, where Netflix showrunner Carrie Leah and I are discussing whether you should bring your true self to work every day. The fact that you come from poverty or areas with mental health problems and, and drug addiction issues, these are things that I didn't want anyone to know and I would never, ever talk about. Whereas now everyone talks about them, you know, mm-hmm. very open. And what do you think about that? Is that, is that a good thing? Well, it's funny. That's a good question. You um, must be quite conflicted about it. Like you obviously spent, you just said you spent years trying to kind of cover that up. Now people yeah. are really open about it. You've mentioned it a bit to me. But where do you stand on it now? I think I never talked about it until I was about 40. And I actually started working at Keogh Films. Up until then, I'd never talked about it. And um, and I realized it was important for me to talk about it because by that point, I was an executive producer. And um, I realized there were other people who, very few people, but other people in the company who might have had my experience. And they would not feel comfortable being who they were unless I was comfortable with who I was. And so I could kind of lead by example. Now, I feel like all of those things helped me and really helped me be empathetic with people, helped me in my job because I've experienced things I've life experienced. I don't see it in any way, shape or form making me a victim. I feel like, you know, my my kids grow up in a very happy, loving household with hopefully none of those things. And I sometimes worry about them. You know, they, they're going to grow up being quite sheltered and not knowing about the dark side of things, which is great. Of course, I want that. But I, for my, for my life and for my brother and sister as well, I think we both, we all saw it as a positive in lots of ways. Where I sit, you know, in my day job, working in talent, I think it is nothing but a benefit to a team scenario if people have and are honest about their personal situations and the things that have caused them to turn into the person that they are today. I can't imagine a development team coming up with ideas for the next series of stuff more boring than a room full of people who look the same, sound the same, had the same upbringing, went to the same university. And, you know, there's a place for everyone that all those things are so important. But if you can shake it up with, you know, people with just different approaches, people who can go, I don't see it like that. I see it like this. Mm-hmm. then that can only be a good thing, can't it? Yeah. Do you know what? I, I used to call it the um, Christmas holiday test. And the Christmas holiday test is when the development team, because I was in development for years and years, uh-huh. you come back after the Christmas holidays and the majority, which will be come from, you know, very nice homes, will come back and say, oh, how was your Christmas holiday? Right? Yeah, everyone mm-hmm. asks. Sure. And the majority that speak up will go, oh, it was great. My mom cooked for me. She washed my pants. I just sat around and watched TV the whole holiday. And I remember looking around and be like, well, I put my dad into rehab this holiday. And actually, my family is very worried about money or, you know, Mm -hmm. financial, you know, Mm -hmm. holidays is extremely stressful if you don't have a lot of, you know, if you don't come from a family of money. And, And actually for half of this country and half of America, half of the UK, the holidays are not a fun time. They're really stressful. But in the development team, because most people don't come from that, all you get is, oh, it's wonderful. Not realizing that for half the country, it's hell. It's not representative then, is it? No, No, of course it's not. So I felt 
uh, you know, yeah. little by little, I not to make people feel guilty. You never want people to feel bad. I mean, I I think it's wonderful that they have a great home, but but that it's that's not the experience for lots of people. No, no, and it's also super personal, isn't it, Carrie? Yeah, mm. like you've said, you didn't want to talk about that. That was part of your life that felt very separate. That you didn't want to talk about, but not everybody you know, wants to bring their whole self to work. And that's cool too. Um, but I, I just, I hope that the environment that we're in now, you know, provides a, a safer, more supportive place for people to be totally themselves. Yeah. 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 Would you have any words of advice to anyone in that situation though? Because there are still, you know, lots of teams that are like that and where people might feel very alone in, in that situation. I think for 20 years, I didn't feel comfortable. You don't have to talk about those things in the worst place you know it's actually good to leave yourself at home my advice would be don't forget what you're bringing to the table and being different is also bringing something and that that is just as useful as fitting in i suppose it's the victim thing i think you always want to be careful not to go into that victim zone which is not helpful that's really nice advice okay so you were in development for quite a while how did the sort of the mid stage of your career go i remember you directing stuff was that something that came naturally <laughs> i wish yeah uh, no <laughs> i really wanted to be a director i was so determined to be a director being a director it was like my kind of end goal of of wonderfulness and except it just wasn't happening for me yes late 20s you start seeing a lot of guys get plucked you know and getting their first director gigs and I was not getting plucked and I couldn't figure out why. And, and, and I would get, you know, great AP jobs, fantastic producer jobs. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the pick of the bunch, it was, it was great, but just wasn't getting asked to be a director. And, and I, it is a really difficult step to, to make. And I finally just said, after one particular producing experience, I just said, no more. I am going to try and do it. And I won't take any job unless it's directing. And that's a tough call to make because yeah. we've all got to eat, right? And exactly. it's a freelance industry, isn't it? Where you, know, <laughs> you still need to pay your rent. Um, you've, you know, you want to see your friends. You're still in your late twenties, but yeah. um, it's so easy to just take the next thing that comes along. Yeah, and so it didn't actually happen until my early thirties. It was much, you know, later than I probably would have liked. How did it happen? I was doing development at Tiger Aspect and there was a new MTV series that was going and they asked me to direct and I, and yeah, and I did that. It was fantastic. But it's, it's different back then. I'm, you know, showing my age, like I, I couldn't really self shoot because the, there were only digi betas and they're like as big as I am now it'd be fantastic. I would love to shoot, but then it wasn't really um, possible, but I don't think that mm -hmm. was the only reason why it took so long. But um, why do you think it took so long? Well, I think it's really hard for people to remember, but back then women weren't seen as directors. And also I didn't want to make lifestyle or baby shows. I was interested in like hard current affairs, you know, or history, you know, kind of observational type of documentaries that are a bit grittier. And those were male only zones back then. You know, boys were seen as that kind of creative type and the and the girls were seen as as meant to be producers and supporting them and that's just it was like an unspoken rule yeah it's not comfortable is it thinking about that yeah i mean it doesn't feel that long ago unfortunately no. so you had you got one directing gig by just holding out holding out yeah. and then doing the mtv thing yeah right 
Yeah. It's good had, though. I love yeah. MTV. <laughs> Do you remember it well? Do you remember the first day? Oh my God, I loved it. It was an observational series about kids. Uh, he was from a strict, very strict Muslim family, was secretly a rapper and a very good one. And he didn't want his parents to find out because they were very religious. There's a lot of pressure though when you as a first time director, isn't there? Both yourself and everyone going, oh, we've taken a bit of a risk here, you know, giving, giving them this job. How did you feel? Yeah. Terrified. <laughs> totally terrified. Because this is the imposter thing. You don't, you think you can do it, but you don't know if you can do it. And I felt terrified. By the time I got my first one under my belt, it was a very different mm -hmm. thing because I, I had produced for so long. I had AP for so long that actually I was like, oh, actually, do you know what? I know what I'm doing. It's okay. But the first one was really scary. First one was really, really scary. By the time I did my second, third one, then it was absolutely fine. And actually, I felt really confident because I had had so much more experience producing an AP. By the time I directed, after I got over my first scary one, absolutely fine. So that grounding in producing for a long time really stood you in good stead. Yeah, fantastic. It was really helpful. Yeah. It's a really irritating fact about the producer, female, director, male thing, isn't it? I mean, I'd, it still, it goes, still on, goes on. Though. I know. It's... I know you just talked about it there like it was in the past and it was, but it is still... Mm -hmm alive and kicking today. But I think that's that's the hangover. Mm. Same thing with, you know, people from underrepresented groups in the industry. It's the hangover yeah. from not doing enough, not not being better at this stuff years ago and still it's mm, working its yeah. way through the pipeline. But I know there are a lot of female producers out there who've been in your shoes and will be listening, thinking, I need, I want to do that. What would you say to them? Well, now... It's fantastic because and I've actually given this advice and, and people have taken it and are directing now, you know, directing within like six months of a year. So I will give this advice to you. When I wanted to be a director, you had to have this match of, you know, 100 pound digibita, right? Now you can shoot something on your phone. You can shoot anything. You can grab a, a camera from the office if, if they let you and you can make something on a weekend. And so I would say film, 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 make a short film. One of the girls, one of my researchers, she made a film about her dad making paper airplanes. I'm not kidding. Cool. And um, it's a fantastic little film. And she got, she started directing six months later, make a film about anything. It's a, about making a sandwich. It doesn't matter, but, you know, make lots of little short films. And it does two things. One, it gets you really knowing the camera, but it also shows people, hey, I'm not just going to sit around and wait for someone to hand me a job. I am a filmmaker to my core and I'm going to do it no matter what, you know? And I think there's a confidence in that. And also it shows that you're, you're going to, you've got that get up and go. I think that's what's important because it is competitive. You know? It really is. It's hard. Yeah. I remember the first time I picked up a camera and I thought, oh my God, I didn't realize that you had to think about all this stuff in order to make it in the edit. I think that's really sound advice. Do you think some of the gender divide in producing and directing is to do with women having families? Yeah, of course. Because I think there is a fear if you're directing that you're going to have to go away a lot, you know, that you're going to be away on location and, and sometimes you can kind of sell select but hopefully that's happening less i think i find men that are having children now are much more involved with the kids than maybe when i first started having kids or even before that so compromises i mean we, we've all had to make compromises around yeah. life and the industry is so all-consuming something has to give at various points right i mean in motherhood as well how did you handle having a baby and then still working in telly anyway um i didn't have a baby i had babies 
I had twins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but very practical. It's very efficient. Get it done in one show. <laughs> I got an amazing boy and a girl. And uh, yeah, I took a, a year off. And then, listen, I love, I love working. I'm totally addicted to, to working. I will admit that. And I wanted to get back to it. And so I worked three, four days a week. And yeah, it was hard, but it would have been harder to not work because I love it too much. Were you worried though, when you were pregnant and then about to go off and have said babies, were you worried about coming back and how you were going to manage the juggle? I was worried, it's going to sound terrible, only because I wanted to work so much. I was worried that I would feel that I was neglecting my kids. And then when I actually had the kids, you know, you're worried that if you're not there with them 24-7, that somehow they're not going to be okay or they're going to feel neglected or whatever. And I just have a rule because my mom works so incredibly hard physically. She would come home and she'd be so tired and then she had to do all the cleaning and everything at the home. So my my rule for me is, you know, I get home and everything is put to the side. I just focus on the kids for an hour or two every evening. No phones, no screens, no nothing. It's just them if I've been working and and just really gives them time and then do the other stuff. So I don't know. I found a way to make it work. I love that. That's about prioritizing, isn't it? Mm. But it means you don't have time for other things. But, you know, I always had time for them. Yeah, that's really cool. How old are they now? They're 13. Do they think mommy's got a really cool job? But this is what's so cool is I always explained it to them. Like, you know, I love what I do and I would take them, you know, to onlines or mixes ever since they were young or in edit suite so they could see it and they knew they could understand what I was doing. Ever since they could understand what was going on, they've been like, we're so proud of you, mommy. And they love watching the shows. So that's fantastic. Yeah. That is really cool. I think it's really inspiring to speak to people who love their job that much that they want to impart that on their family too. Because if it's going to take you away from them, they better know that you love it. You know, there's nothing worse than, you know, being stuck at a desk in an office for like, you know, hours and hours a week. And all you do is come home and moan about it. And your kids are like, I don't want to have a job like that or oh, I don't want yeah. to work if it's going to do that to me yeah although my daughter does say I'm not sure I want to work as hard as you do mommy I want to have an easy life <laughs> well good luck with that <laughs> she better not work in tv then I I we've got a website head to the where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination Wah-ha. Don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode. Okay, so you're directing now. Actually, I don't think imposter syndrome is quite the right label for what you're you're talking about. It's almost like really wanting something to work enough to really fight for it and it not coming naturally for reasons probably out of your control perhaps. So that's what you did to get into directing. You just mm-hmm. worked really hard and yeah. waited Do you know, my husband's a film composer and we talk about this a lot. We always joke around that we we somehow, we seem to have to work twice as hard as everyone else. Or that's the kind of motto. (laughs) You have this thing called the fear. And and I think a lot of young people talk about it. They call it anxiety. And we actually say that fear that you feel when you think, I don't know if I can do it, is actually a good thing. If you can kind of take that feeling of, oh my God, how am I going to do this? I'm very used to that feeling. And that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning that makes me search my brain for a more creative idea of a better way of doing things. And I just think 
that fear is never going to go away. I'll always have that. But you use that feeling and that fear to push you to do more. I mean, it's a kind of not resting on your laurels, like always wanting to do better. Yeah. Well, especially because TV is changing all the time. You can't. I mean, no one can because you're, you know, you're always being pushed in TV to do something bigger and better, you know. Yeah. Commissioner's never happy. It's always got to be bolder, bigger. Where's the hook? Where's more jeopardy? Exactly. But I think viewers want that too. Like viewers want to see something exciting. They've seen, you know, the other thing before. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Expectations of the audience are mega high, aren't they? Yeah. And ultimately, it's all for them. Everything that we're making is for the viewers. It's not for the commissioner. You know, it's always about the viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That brings us nicely on then, actually, to break point. So you exec for quite a while. And then Mm -hmm. I remember when we were kind of back in touch, um, you had got the job as a showrunner on Mm -hmm. break point. And the showrunner is a really finely nuanced title, actually. And it means something slightly different depending on the project or the the broadcaster but some people may see it as less senior than an exec because it's a kind of hands-on in the field all day every day on one project mm-hmm. kind of exec tell me about why you wanted to take that job well I love execing and I still love execing but I think I really missed being out on location and I missed getting my hands dirty and just being on one being able to really focus on one project because when you're executing you're probably doing you know two three four projects at a time I certainly didn't feel like it was a step down at all. Um, I mean, this was a 10-part series for Netflix. And from the very beginning, they were saying, you know, they want this to be Netflix's biggest documentary series of the year, non-scripted. But also, you know, as an American, nothing I was making here, it was very difficult for my friends and family back home to be able to see it. So to be able to do something that was going to be big on Netflix and that everyone at home could see was exciting. And I love tennis. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's actually quite a few boxes ticked of the things that you wanted to do. Get back to um, hands dirty action, have your friends, family at home watch something and a sport that you really enjoyed. That's that's pretty awesome. And to make a huge series for Netflix with those big sports doc reputations. How did you feel going into that? Were you comfortable enough to think I've got this? No, it's totally terrifying. Of course. I mean, God, talk about the fear. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had four days before I had to get on a plane and go on my first shoot. There was no prep time. I had to hire almost 40 people and then also come up with the idea of what are these 10 episodes going to be about? It can't just be about tennis. It has to be about something much deeper and more meaningful. You know, this took up a huge 24-7 every single day, every weekend, every evening for a year of making a series. It was really full on. That's and bonkers. Very, yeah. Yeah, Talk was, about was... addicted to, to your job. How did your family react to that? Maybe a better question is mm-hmm. how do you juggle it as a partnership when you both have incredibly full-on roles? My husband took on slightly less work. And uh, listen, I have help at home. Like, I'm not going to lie. A lot of women don't want to admit that, but I, there's no way I could do my job without having help. The only free time I have is, like I say, going to spend talking to my kids and sitting down and doing some homework with them. Okay. So going back then, you're on the plane. Uh, where were you heading to? LA, Indian Wells. Yes. Madly reading notes on everyone, like writing scripts. I was actually listening to some audio interviews with them and then just really thinking, what are the things that keep on coming up? What are the reoccurring things? And actually, what are the things as a viewer 
that you want to know that you can relate to whether or not you play tennis, whether or not you've ever been mm-hmm. on a tennis court. What are the things that kind of ring true? So there's a lot of pressure on a series like that. You've already said you were kind of terrified, which is yeah. refreshing to hear and to admit. So there's an element of feeling out of your depth there, I guess. I, n- I don't think it was out of my depth. I think it was just that it was a lot on. It was just like really, really hard work every single day and putting one step in front of the other. I always felt we could do it, but it was it was tough. It was really, it was really tough. And there's no magic secret. I mean, you always want to know what's the magic secret to make it easier and less painful next time. But the only secret is just every single day, just little by little, step by step, working hard. I thought you were going to tell us all a secret about how to make our lives easier. Well, when you find that out, when one of your guests tell you, which I'm sure they will, you got to tell me. <laughs> I should get, I should glean all the, all the stuff that everyone says from each episode and we'll do a highlights and then we'll listen to that and tell you we'll, we'll be so much easier. How about that? Yeah. So how, and how do you support your team in a situation that's so full on then for a, such a long time? Supporting my team was incredibly important to me because I, and this isn't just my belief, like like lots of managerial studies will bear this out. I think if a team feels safe and protected and listened to and looked after, they will be better at their job. They will be more creative. They will work harder because they feel that they're listened to and their ideas are are validated. And plus, like, listen, the most important my job, part of my job is what you do is hiring the best people. I mean, if you hire the best people, like half your job is already done. So, you know, I made sure we got in the best people, which we did. Our team was fantastic. And then um, we were actually asked to deliver early, even earlier than we thought. Oh, yeah. So it was like four four weeks, I think, got cut off the schedule. And we, we didn't know what if we could do it, but we said we would try and, and in the end we did it. And it was very hard. Not everyone was supportive. There were people who thought we weren't going to do it. I always find it really weird. There is on a first series, there is always this time where it looks like it's not going to work, where it's like, um, I always say it it looks like a ugly preteen, you know, the teeth are too big for its face. It's got spots. And at that time, it's like, who's going to lose their nerve? And there's a sort of roving kind of finger pointing of who are we going to blame for the fact that it's not going is isn't working and which is ridiculous because first series are always go through this ugly preteen stage right and my feeling is always if you're going to blame anyone I will take that for the team you blame me and let the team keep on working and so I felt very strongly Mm -hmm. about this and the team knew I felt very strongly about that and um and because of that we were able to crack on and we did it that's a really healthy amateur stance uh, where did you learn that from? Probably from failing many times. <laughs> or have you had bosses that did not do that? Of course. Most bosses don't do that. <laughs> I make a lot of first series. I love making first series. Good, in our case, is not is not good enough. You know, they had to be fantastic. Anything less than fantastic was not good enough. So the bar was very high. Mm. I love that about your approach, though. It's so refreshing to hear that because, as you say, your team then respect you and want to work really well for you as well as just making the best series possible because they felt that you were going to back them up. But it goes both ways because I, I want to work with them. You know, I mean, like they're fantastically talented people. Were there any moments during the making of that, though, where you thought, what am I doing here? Or where you really felt 
scared that it wasn't going to pan out? I mean, I should say yes, but I would say no only because actually no one knows what they're doing in this scenario. Like no one's ever done this before. So if I don't know what I'm doing, that's like completely normal because no one's ever made this series before. It's not like there's loads of, you know, tennis shows with full behind the scenes access where some of the most famous tennis players in the world like that just hasn't happened before. So there's kind of a comfort in it being a first series as well because you've got no precedent and you know yeah. that no one else knows better than you. Well, I'm sure there's someone that knows better than me. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. I kind of like that. I think that would be reassuring for people to think like that, to not, you know, to not panic and think someone else is going to be doing this way better because it actually it's the first time and you've got to believe in what you've learned so far. Yeah. I don't even like to think of them as mistakes because they're just learning, you know, there are ways that you learn and you get better. I think what's coming across is your resilience though, Carrie. Like there must have been times over your career where people have told you that you can't do that or um, that's not possible or you won't get access there or do you really think that you can shoot that thing? This is why I could never be a commissioning editor. And honestly, I shouldn't say that because I work on starting on a no and I love turning a no into a yes. That's like my best challenge. I love that. Right. Because I'm so used to everyone says no at the beginning. Right. And I think that uh, I always I feel for the commissioners because if everyone's pitching at you, I would find that very, very difficult. That would be a totally switch of the role. I love that. <laughs> so everyone should go to carry with something that's not possible. And she'll no, make it work. No more, no more. Yeah. Loads I've more had things like for that. A lifetime. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but you must be so proud of Breakpoint and its success. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's fantastic. And actually, the, the best moment of the whole thing was on Tottenham Court Road. I don't know if you know it, but they have this huge kind of digital, massive kind of screens everywhere. And uh, yeah. we had heard that the screens were all full of the Breakpoint trailer. And so I told my team to, you know, for everyone, I was, I don't know, 15, 20 of us to down tools. And we all walked over to see the screen and we were so tired and burnt out by that point. I actually filmed my team the first time that they saw the screen. Everyone was smiling and there was this look of like, wow, you know, and seeing everyone smile like that was the best, you know. All of that time spent away from your family and everything is going to be worthwhile. That's an awesome payoff. I mean, not not many projects get that real tangible in your face. Woohoo, you've done it moment. Do yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was amazing. It was great. And then did you all go down the pub and have lots of drinks? No, then we went back to work. <laughs> I was going to say, that moment lasts for about, you know, five, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it. And now back to work. We've got to sort that, <laughs> we, sort that sheet. We have deadlines. We have deadlines. Is there anything you wish that you could tell the younger Carrie now with the experiences you've had over your career? Yeah, I think I'd like to tell myself not to worry so much. But then, but then I wonder if the worry is part of the reason why it was okay. I, I don't know. It sounds like it was a driver. The worry was a, a yeah. bit of a driver for your, your ambition. Yeah. 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 And I think there's definitely been times where I've felt like an imposter, but I think also just the idea of that there was no way back for me. You know, there was no kind of ladder to creep down on if it didn't sort of work out. So I, even though I know, of course, I don't fit in or I don't look the part, I certainly don't look the part for most jobs I go in for. I kind of feel okay about that, I suppose. I, but that took me a long time to get to that place. What do you mean by you don't think you look 
the part going for most of the jobs you do? What what is what is the part? Well, it's changed now. I mean, the last five years since Me Too, of course, it's changed. But when I first became an exec, a lot of the execs were their men, they're English, they have a certain kind of educational background. And I I suppose if we're talking about being imposter, I had to learn how to think and talk and understand the world as they did and, and understand their world, but not the other way around, if that makes sense. When you're walking into a room and you're kind of five foot one Californian semi-brown girl, you're not like, you're not the first. When people think, I want a big showrunner, I want a big executive producer, I'm not, the image they have in their mind is is not me. It's just something you're aware of. Mm. But you are that person. And so you shouldn't be an imposter club. So I should actually kick you out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but Carrie, thank you so much for sharing so much about your career and those, those moments where you felt like you needed to fight for it and that you were scared of something. And I just think to humanize this mad industry and to find common ground with people who are really trying hard to make it work in a scary, subjective freelance industry is is all a good thing. So thank you so much for, for sharing today. Thanks. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Right. Come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence, and place premium senior talent in behind-the-screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, executive producer, Rosie Turner.